0: To the black hole. You're listening to the Launchcast, the podcast about leadership, business, life, and growth. With me, your host, George Andriopoulos. It's like food for your ears. What's next on the agenda? Oh, oh, let's get checked. This episode is brought to you by Let's Get Checked, the leading provider of at-home health tests. Guys, are you looking to improve your thyroid levels? With Let's Get Checked, you can do a simple at-home health test that will give you a complete picture of your hormonal health in just five days. Fabrizio, you should be all over this, man. Let us let me throw some facts at you. Did you know that 42% of people have said that they have never tested their thyroid function? Thyroid function is important for a number of different functions like regulating metabolism, stimulating digestion, Bone maintenance, brain development, cardiovascular health. I feel like I'm your doctor, Fabrizio. Now, some of the main symptoms of thyroid imbalance include, and I'm going to check these off for you, buddy. Weight gain, check. Fatigue, check. Slow pulse or heart rate, uh, how should I know? Hair loss or thinning, uh, check. Poor tolerance of the cold, depression, who knows? Dry coarse, or thickened hair. Constipation, yes, thanks for too much information, but yes, check, Fabrizio hand tingling or pain, irregular period, or low sex drive. You have both Fabrizio. Congratulations. Muscle cramps, impaired memory. Now, how does the process work? Your test is delivered straight to your doctor. You just have to self-collect your blood sample from the tip of your finger, uh, Fabrizio, don't make that face. Don't be a baby. You self collect the sample from the tip of your finger, mail the sample back to their accredited labs in the prepaid label, and receive support and guidance from the LGC medical team, who are available 24 7 to offer you the personalized advice you need to know your hormonal health. Now, this week, Let's Get Checked wants to invite you to join their community with the 30% discount code LaunchCast30. That's our code, it's in the show notes. Check out the link in the show notes. Use LaunchCast30 and get checked. Guys, you too, Fabrizio. What are you waiting for? Go.
1: At this time, I'm going to ask that you fasten your seatbelts. Launch sequence. Launch sequence activated. Launch sequence activated. Five, four, three, two, one. Woo!
0: Hey everybody! Welcome to the Launchcast. The storm is coming, but I'm I know you can't see it, but I still have goosebumps every time. I'm Episode lie, 132. This one's called "All the World's a Stage," and you're gonna find out why. We got a good one today, guys. But first. As always, it's the Launch Dad himself bringing you your favorite podcast on the planet. We are talking leadership, we're talking business, we're talking life, and we are talking growth. And we're doing it all right now as the beat drops.
1: Into the black.
0: What's happening, guys? Thanks for joining me again for another episode of the LaunchCast. Uh, I'm so excited today. I'm so, so excited because we're going to continue talking about leadership. We are back to interviews as we have spoken about. Um, But first, I want to do a quick little plug here. Quick little plug because, uh, you know, those of you that know me know that I am a public speaker. I'm a keynote speaker, a TEDx speaker. And the other day I had... A crazy little surprise while Googling myself, Um, I saw this link to this book, if you guys can see it, it's called Great TED Talks Innovation, Unofficial Guide with Words of Wisdom from 100 TED Speakers, and guess whose TEDx is in this baby right here? Uh, So I'll throw a link in the show notes for it, it's a brief little jammy on the 79th uh talk out of a hundred but hey it's something we're featured in there uh but i want to i want to bring my guest on today hang on let me bring his face on here here we go what's happening man
1: hey what's going on
0: thanks so much for being here
1: Hey, thanks for having
0: me yeah absolutely so our guest today is dan Dominic. So let me do the the bio and we're going to get into it so dan is an american singer director actor best known for his understudy portrayal of jason dean and heathers the musical drew in the broadway musical rock of ages my favorite of all time by the way nice. and a recurring guest appearance on glee uh dan has also appeared in the pre-Broadway runs of Wonderland, Sister Act, national, international tours of Rent, my other favorite, uh, and Rock of Ages, and worked as an associate choreographer for film and TV projects like Tropic Thunder, Step Brothers, Fame, the Academy Awards, and Emmys. Uh, He made his directorial debut summer of 2017 with the beta test of the revamped Heather's the Musical before being mounted in its sold-out run at the Other Palace Theater in London. Wow. (laughs) And... And he's from the same place I'm from. He's another yeah. Daler. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, was, uh, I was actually just out in Farmingdale uh, for Fourth of July weekend. Oh, were you really? Yeah, yeah I was going to be back. Uh, I didn't expect to hear so many fireworks. It's a little different than I remembered.
0: Oh, dude. Yeah, we were we were actually at our place out east, and uh, we were checking the cameras every so often. And we, we turned them on at like 10 o'clock, and it was like a military strike outside of our yeah. house. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it was going on till one thirty in the morning, on, right there on Woodward Parkway. I was like, "Ooh, this is this is different."
0: That's the deal, right?
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, right? Yeah, right. Yeah.
0: So, uh, uh, Dan, I want to get started. I want to ask you the the question that we always start with here on the Launchcast. Um, question is: Dan, are you a leader?
1: Um, you know, it's especially because of the industry that I'm in right now. Uh, we're used to having new jobs every six months to a year, and you find yourself uh, kind of seeing what the natural hierarchy of your new group of people that you get put into uh, turns into. And sometimes that is a leadership role, which I have been in. Uh, but sometimes it's not the leadership role and you have to learn when to be, you know, the leader and when to take charge and when to start making decisions and when to recognize that someone else has that seat and you should be listening to what they're doing.
0: Yeah. You know, we're, we're in a time right now where, and we're going to get into all this stuff with COVID oh, yeah. and and just, Everything going on right now, which is insane, especially for your industry. Uh, But I noticed a quote on your website, which I thought was very interesting. Uh, Quote is, I want to take every good thing I've experienced in this business and put it into every project I work on. Uh, Every great singer, every great actor, every great director. There are mentors all around us, and we need to take their lead and be the change that transcends our industry. Don't let people try to tell you that you can't. you know, man, as a, as a guy that, you know, I consider myself a leader, uh, um, a transformational leader. I really try and lead alongside others. And when I read this quote and, and see some of the stuff that you've been doing, I know you've been moving to directing as well. Uh, and, I you know, I see leadership just written all over it. And in, in an industry where there's, um, you know, a brotherhood and a sisterhood uh, amongst actors, amongst directors, amongst, uh, you know, creatives out there. Uh, I think it's so important to bring everybody along for the ride with yeah. you, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So um let's kind of let's kind of start at the beginning, right? Uh so you were you grew up on Long Island, New York, uh-huh. right? Yeah. In Farmingdale. Um I want to ask you, gr- you know, growing up in the same town and and a lot of the people that are on the show here somehow some way they wind up always having some kind of um association with with my hometown. Uh and it's cuz it's a special place, guys.
1: <laughs> it, it really is. It
0: it it is. And uh I I wanted I wanted to see just knowing the dynamics. I think you're just a year younger than me, I believe. Um
1: I just turned
0: 40. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I turned 40 in December. So, there you um go. Yeah. yeah, and so uh knowing just the climate back then and and uh uh coming up in the same schools and everything. I want to I want to hear what was it like growing up on Long Island for you? Um Actually, you know what? The first question I should ask you is: Is this what you always wanted to do?
1: Yeah. Wait. Uh, like, let me let me let me roll back. No, I always wanted to make video games for a living. Because you remember, like back at when the, it used to be called the Sunrise Mall. Yeah. And there were two arcades. There was Time Out, and I think the other one was called Galaxy.
0: Galaxy, yeah. yeah. <laughs> By Sabaros <some> <laughs> re-
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But, you know, you'd go to the mall with your parents, and they'd shop, and you'd go to the arcade, and you'd hang out, and you'd wait. And I remember uh, Mortal Kombat had just come out, (laughs) and everyone would crowd around the cabinet and watch these people play. And then another game called Killer Instinct came out, and I was like, oh, God, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. (laughs) I want to do that for a living. So I just dove into video games, and I'm still into them now, but it was just like that was the – I was obsessed and I was like, I had all these images in my head and all these ideas in my head. And I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to create the thing that's going to bring all these people together to crowd around a cabinet and have people lining up their quarters on the screen waiting to play. Um, And then because of my experience in over at Howitt middle school, uh, I actually found a different path into musical theater because that's where I really found the community that I was looking for at that time in my life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Um, You know, now Years later and I have uh, now a daughter uh, that's in the middle school and was just in their production of uh, a Little Shop of Horrors uh, mm-hmm. this past spring um, I know that that the theater program is something that they really pride themselves on uh, in this school district and even even back then too but what's cool now is that um, it, it's sort of uh, it's cool to do it like it's part of the, uh, the in-group you know mm-hmm. in a way you know which which was different cuz i remember it was like playcrafters back then right yep. uh and there was like the playcrafters kids and the jocks and the and the whatever and so i can't see there having been that much support from from the peer groups uh back then and coming up in the theater so that's kind of what i wanted to ask you is growing up on long island what was that like as somebody that eventually aspired to to go into theater
1: um well what the way i got dragged into it was cuz of our now late chorus teacher, Michelle Lindsley, she um, she was directing the shows in the middle school. And whatever it was that she saw in me, which I didn't know I had in myself, she said, I want to put you in the school show. And I, I had a rough time coming up in the school system in Farmingdale because I was a bit of a runt. And so I was an easy target. Yeah. And so the idea of going up and being on stage, uh, I thought that would make it worse. So I did everything that I could to not do it. And I still ended up doing it and ended, it ended up, it changed my life. It absolutely changed my life. And then I got into the high school and uh, got into that community. And, uh, and that's when I realized that's where I belong. Cause I was able to be like my weird self around these people. And it was such an open and accepting environment. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and then as your peers, in school come to see you do the show you start getting attention that you're not used to and you were someone in my position it's like wow why is everyone all of a sudden wanting to talk to me and it's because it's it's entertainment they're entertained and and yeah that's when i that's when i learned about all that i gotta i gotta <laughs> tell yeah, you the career was it's is one thing
0: yeah i gotta tell you um looking at it from from a dad's eyes now uh you know i was in i had that same teacher, Miss Lindsley. I was in the uh, Give My Regards to Broadway in in junior high school. And although I remember having such a blast and really, really enjoyed it, would have done it in a second again, um, I just didn't because I guess there wasn't uh, uh, that kind of acceptance amongst peers, right, for for doing that. It was kind of like you were in the out group for doing that. And I just really never pursued it. Uh, And I look back now, just not that I – could have done anything but like I look back now and know like I love musical theater I love going to the theater I'm, I've watched Hamilton about like 80 times in the last three days um, you know and it's uh it's something where you go you know if you had that support back then I wonder what would have changed and now watching my, my daughter who you know just started middle school last year you know trying to find her way first of all just from going from elementary school to middle school and then seeing the theater thing happen for her which we always knew would happen and just like in a matter of months she like transformed
1: yeah you open up it's
0: and 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 i loved it you know and and she was just ensemble or whatever but man did she have a blast and she committed and she was so serious about it And it was like oh god i hope you like just continue this you know as as a parent it's like it's amazing just seeing that you know that changing your kid you know from something that they love what kind of uh what kind of support did you have at home from uh you know, as far as theater,
1: oh, they were—they just let me do what what felt right because I, I think my parents realized early on that if they tried to force me in a certain direction, that it wouldn't work because either I was too stubborn, or or I it would I would be bored, or it just wouldn't catch. And they're like, you know what? Let's let you guys find yourselves, and then we'll support when it when something latches on. And uh, that was the best thing they could have done because it worked for me, and it also worked for my sister. You know, she works in corporate, and she's been very successful. Um, and that goes hand in hand with that whole just letting your kid finding out who they are before you start to fan whatever flame. Yeah, you know, catches on to them. Um,
0: yeah, yeah, amazing. Yeah. And and what was the trajectory like after high school?
1: Um, after high school, I got into doing community theater. Um, at a theater in Plainview. Uh, I was about 15, 20 minutes from the house Mm -hmm. and again found that sense of community there. I was like, great. We're all able to be ourselves here. And uh, I was temping during the day. I was working as a dancer and an MC for an entertainment company on the weekends uh, just trying to make money because I didn't know what I wanted to do for a living Mm because I didn't think that I could do this for a living. Um, It was always that story of it's competitive it's difficult it's everyone's always struggling and uh i listened to that because i didn't know i was still young um so i was doing it for fun and but we were doing shows back to back i mean we were doing one show at night rehearsing another show during the day and it didn't feel like work because we were just a bunch of kids hanging out playing pretend on stage it was awesome yeah Uh, but then they started to encourage me to audition for shows in the city and so I went, I think I was 18 or 19 years old, four o'clock in the morning to the Latin Quarter to audition for Rent. And I stood in line for probably five hours before I got seen. And that's when I got my first professional callback. Uh, and little did I know that it was going to take three, four years just to get into the show and get the career going. But it didn't feel, again, it didn't feel like work because it was just the lifestyle that I was used to, yeah. hanging out with people, singing, having a good time. And that's what it was in that audition room.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Um, you know, the, these moments, we talk about this on the show a lot, uh, something we call a spark moment. It's these moments in your life that when you look back, they were these really pivotal moments that led you down a certain path. Right. Um, and whether, whether good or bad, that path, it had a, a major effect on your life, uh, you know, going forward. Um, and so I remember hearing years ago, probably when social media started getting a little more prevalent, I don't know if it was MySpace or Facebook or whatever, uh, and life all journal. of a sudden- Yeah, a <laughs> live journal I had. <laughs> um, and, and then all of a sudden, it was like, uh, from from you know a lot of peers uh, from high school, Dan, 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 and I was like, who is this guy? I don't remember him from school. And it was like, it was insane. What was that- big moment for you where uh where everything just sort of changed in terms of your career
1: you mean career-wise or, before, or like before i had a career
0: career-wise and then we'll, we'll get back
1: career-wise. all right um when did everything change for my career it's hard to say because the first in my 20s it was it just felt it didn't feel like work at all it felt just like a routine and um and then even doing the actual work of putting up a show and performing a show felt the same as the community theater. Felt same as the same as when I was in high school, only with a bigger budget. You know, right. better lights, better costumes. You know, a band. And um, I think when it, I think what it really clicked in my head was the first time I did a show that had never been written before, and I had a role that. I was creating from scratch and that was sister Act the musical. We were doing it at the Pasadena playhouse in California. And, uh, it was directed by Peter Schneider who used to be the head of Disney animation back when they were doing the lion King and little mermaid. And he's the guy that made the deal between Pixar and them. It's he's, if you Google him, Peter Schneider is, yeah. I, I didn't know who he was when I went in the room. And if I would have known, I probably would have bombed that audition. Alan Mencken was in there. Marguerite Derrick's just these, these heavy, heavy hitters. And, and I got the job and I went out there and that's when I was like, Oh, this is it. This is, this is what the job is about. What I do here, it's going to be what other actors are going to do for years to come. (laughs) Again, though, like the business happens and you learn more and more just when you think you know what you're doing, another curveball gets tossed at you. But, but we forged ahead and that was, that's, that was that moment that I was like, all right, here we go. Let's do this.
0: Yeah, and uh, something I want to note, too, was, uh, you know, in doing the research for for the interview, I was watching, uh, you know, a few interviews that you've done. And then recently, and we'll get to to this whole thing with the cruise ship, but uh, recently you were interviewed by Whoopi Goldberg on The View. (laughs) And I saw this moment of, and I don't want to say, I don't know if she was, like, not super prepared for the interview or what but uh i just remember reading her reading a couple of things from the bio and she got to sister act it was like like there was this moment of like sister act, right yeah how was how was that to to interview to get interviewed by the original
1: (laughs) i don't know what was going on in her head at that time but if i was a betting man because she wasn't attached to the project when i was on it uh Because this is, again, this is one of those things that like, when the business happens in theater, it's like a big slap in the face, but you just got to go with it. You're, we were doing the show, and it was supposed to go to Broadway. That was, that was what we were being told. And instead of going to Broadway, for whatever reason, it went over to the UK first. But now 40-year-old Dan understands that it's expensive to ship an entire cast over sure. to keep all of your creative team. And so it went over there, and that's when she got attached to the project. Um, But we had all got let go at that point. They kept one actor. Her name is Bettina Miller. She became a Broadway star. And we were all just like, oh, my God. And I thought, I just told everybody that I'm going to be on Broadway. (laughs) And I just got let go. What the hell do I do? Uh, And that's when I moved to Los Angeles. I was like, I'm good. You know what? I, I was in rent. That was the goal. That's what I thought was the goal. Yeah, and that uh, and I left, but uh, so I think that's where that came from. She was like, "Sister Act." Oh, I don't <laughs> remember this guy. Yeah, I was there <laughs> the year before you got it.
0: Oh man, that's crazy. So I want to talk a little bit about. Uh, look there, there you are. Yeah. You're back. All right, uh, I want to talk a little bit about um, the journey from uh, kind of getting to to New York City and then. Uh, getting to that point where some major things started happening uh, in your career. Talk to me about um, the vibe back then. You know, you're, you're a young dude just getting started uh, in the theater industry. And moved? I'm assuming you moved to New York or were you commuting at the time?
1: Uh, wait, is this, what, what part are we talking about? We're kind of
0: going back, back to uh, getting from uh, the point where you were doing local theater and then got the audition with Rent.
1: Oh, wow, uh, Long Island Railroad, baby! Long Island
0: Railroad, yeah.
1: <laughs> in and out every week, yeah.
0: Yeah, what was what was the vibe like back then? Just kind of being, you know, the proverbial struggling actor and and auditions and, and the whole deal.
1: Yeah, uh, that was a really interesting time because you you get to these studios in New York, and you start running into the same casting directors and before and then I didn't understand that that's when those relationships are starting to be built. And you start seeing the same actors waiting in line with you, especially once you start getting callbacks, these other people are getting callbacks and you, can, you get to know their names, you get to know their lives, you get to know their talents because you can hear them through the door. Um, but the vibe was, it was the most, it was a mix of community and competitiveness because when you're sitting there and you feel like you're getting down to the line, you keep seeing the same people over and over, you go, oh my God, one of us is gonna get this. Who's it gonna be? But you don't have enough like social maturity or knowing of the business to go. One of us is gonna get this, but a lot of us are probably gonna get this over the years because this show is not going anywhere. And that's what ends up happening. You end up in shows with these same people yeah. all the time. Or you end up in shows with their friends, because it becomes this the world gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller as the talent gets narrowed down, and before you know it, everybody knows each other. Right. It's, weirdest thing
0: what's what's the lesson in that man what's the lesson in in uh you know looking at like 20 year old dan versus 40 year old dan
1: oh oh one of my favorite things that nell benjamin says when she does her she does her workshops is don't be a dick (laughs) (laughs) you're gonna run into them again don't be a dick
0: yeah yeah Mm -hmm. um you know as as a as a business person my my main business is i own a a consulting firm and you know we help fix broken businesses and uh it's something that people still have, even at this age, forty and above, still have a hard time understanding that. Yeah. <laughs> just your relationships in in your professional life are everything, and how you handle yeah. them. Yeah,
1: the small world. Each each industry is a small world. You know, when you talk to anyone in any other industry, it's like, yeah, we all know each other. Go, like, oh. all right. That's 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 been the craziest thing is the similarities between what I do and let's say like something that my sister does. And to, it's the, 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 cultures are different, but the attitudes are the same, you know, understanding well, community. And it's kind of the
0: secret together. to all of it, Dan, right? Like, and it's, it's funny because, um, you know, when I speak to people, whether it's, you know, interviews or, or on a business level or whatever, um, when I kind of, when I see the people sort of realize that and have that enlightenment, it's kind of like, all right, they get it. You know, uh-huh. um, you think I
1: call the bridges that you burn, and you're like, "Oh shoot!" Yeah, I really but it's yeah. like
0: every everything is the same, and of course, everything has its own nuances. Um, you know, every industry is going to be different. But I, when I started this company uh, seven seven years ago, now, um, you know, I left the the medical industry, and after a couple of years, started consulting. And my goal was: well, I worked in the medical industry for 13 years. I'm gonna I'm going to now consult in the medical industry. And then my first client was not. And then my second client was not. And my third client. And then six months into it, I'm like, man, like businesses are all the same for the most part. Like the foundation of everything is very similar. You know, and and this formula to fixing a business or or whatever it is that, you know, somebody is working on, it's going to sort of transcend. And yeah, everything has its own nuances, but shit, man.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The foundation is the same. The legs that keep it moving. It's pretty much the same.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I want to, I want to get back to, to the career here. So talk to me about, um, uh, at the time, you know, early on, what was the biggest hurdle? Um, and and not just as, as an actor, um, but really trying to stand out in an industry, right? Because that's, that's kind of the goal. Mm-hmm. What what was the biggest hurdle for you in sort of getting from point A to point B, point B being like where you wanted to be, what the goal was?
1: Yeah, I think uh, my age, because I had more ambition that my age was, uh, I was, it was always like, Dan, you're too young, but keep coming back. Dan, you're too young, but keep coming back. And I'm like, I, I, you see success stories of people your age and you're, and you think I'm not too so young because look at these people. They're doing it. They're people younger than me doing it. What's the, what's the issue here? Um, but I realizing that it wasn't, if I was in their shoes, I wouldn't have said to someone that you're too young. I would have said you're not mature enough yet Yeah. because they clearly saw that I didn't have something in that room that they were looking for, but it wasn't articulated. So I think kind of understanding the critiques that I was getting, uh, that was the biggest hurdle because in my brain it was always just show up and be good and get a job. But it
0: it goes beyond that. Yeah, yeah. There's a certain level of of maturity. Like life has to happen, right? Um, yep. It's uh, it, it's something even even with my kids that I look at I look at my uh, my son and my daughter. My daughter is very similar to the way I was growing up, and I see some of the stuff that she struggles with. And um, as much as you want to be like, oh, let me tell you how to do this, you're kind of like <laughs> you you got to go through it. You just got to go through yeah. it. It's the you best know, way to learn. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, moving on with the career, and I, I, and I don't know uh, timeline-wise um, what the comparison was to, to uh, success on the stage versus on the TV screen, but Glee. Glee must oh, have been uh, uh, huge for you. You played Chase Madison, a fashion designer for Vogue. Uh, he makes his first appearance in The Makeover, which is the third episode of season four. Uh, Talk to me about that whole experience, man.
1: That was a huge learning experience because I didn't go to school for this. And uh, I didn't I wasn't pursuing television and film um, as a career because I was a stage performer and stage performing and TV and film performing are two very different things. Although, you know eighteen year old Dan wouldn't have said that. I would have been like, It's all acting. Yeah. It's not. You do theater performing on screen, you look like a crazy person. Because it takes so much energy on the stage versus a camera, you know, twelve inches from your face. You gotta you gotta dial it back. Yeah. I did not know this. Uh but that was wild. I was doing uh, uh Aladdin at the Tuacon Amphitheater. It was, um, there were, do- there were three productions of Aladdin going on in the country, one at the Fifth Avenue Theater, the Muni, and two con, and it was all the new script that ended up being on uh, Broadway eventually. So I was taking that job very, very seriously, because I knew that people from Disney were coming to see it. And, uh, you know, of course, I'm sure everyone wanted to play Aladdin, because any 90s Disney child <laughs> wants to be Aladdin, he was the coolest <laughs> one. And so, uh, so I'm doing that, and I get a call, I get an email from my manager, uh just like every other audition email it's like audition and it says glee and glee was huge and i'm like oh yeah glee all right and it's a role it has a name it was like it wasn't like you know suitcase guy it was no chase madison i was like oh Uh, no it was name wasn't chase madison back then it was um oh what the heck was it it was some it was like another soap opera name
0: it was something crazy. That is a but, soap opera
1: it was, name. <laughs> yeah, it was totally, yeah. It was, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like a Trevor. <laughs> you know, it wasn't Trevor, but it's a soap opera name. And uh, and so I look at it, and he tells me, he's like, uh, they're looking to make this into a recurring role. I was like, oh, shoot, that's amazing. Okay. But at that point in my career, I, I had auditioned for, at, at that point, you auditioned for so much. We're yeah. like 10 years, almost 10 years into my career now. Um. That you take it seriously, but you also don't put so much weight on it going, this is the one, because you've heard no so many times at that point. Right. It's just go in, be good, do the job, and move on. So uh, my one of the one of my friends in the cast, Nicole, she came over and helped me put myself on tape, set up the camera, did the lines, put the suit on, sent it out, and went back to rehearsal because we're doing Aladdin. Yeah. Uh, three or four days later, I get a call and they're like, they want you to do it. And I was like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> I'm like, I don't have time for this right now. We're doing this show that we have to put up. I, like, I did not expect that to hit. So I'm in Utah and this is filming in Los Angeles. And I was like, all right, all right. I could do both. I could do both. I know Aladdin very well. It's my favorite show. I could figure out, you know, four pages of dialogue. So I'm like, give me the, give me the lines as soon as you can. And they're like, all right, we will. And nothing. And this thing is filming in like a week. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I'm in rehearsals, stressing about Glee. Yeah, We're we getting the lines. When's the flight? No information. Uh, so finally, I get my sides. I start learning the lines. And I'm like, what's what's the flight information? They're going to get it to us. I'm like, this is in a couple of days. How am I getting to Los Angeles? Uh, eventually, I get my flight. I stayed with on my friend's couch that night before. And uh, I show up on the day. This is like after... Costume fittings and all that stuff already happened, and uh, and I sit down. And my first scene is with Sarah Jessica Parker. Uh, <laughs> no pressure. Nope. Yeah. No pressure. <laughs> first TV gig. Ten years into a career with Sarah Jessica Parker. <laughs> this is gonna be great. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, so I show up. To the set, and they put me in something called a honey wagon, which is basically a trailer with a bunch of tiny—there may be four feet wide, maybe eight feet deep rooms where the couch doubles as a toilet. That's not <laughs> even a joke. The couch—the oh. end of the couch flips up, and that's where the toilet is. It's like solitary confinement <laughs> in the LA heat with a three-piece suit, and uh, and I'm sitting there and I'm waiting, and I'm like, okay uh what's going on they're like we'll call you when we need you it's like great so i sit there i'm going on my lines an hour goes by two hours go by at this point i haven't even gotten any sleep because i'm stressing out so much because i cut this show and uh and then i get the call and they're like great we're gonna do a rehearsal um they want you to rehearse in costume it's like oh great put the costume on get in the golf cart they take it set and uh, they said, You're not allowed to have your lines. The director doesn't want you to have your lines on you. I was like, Okay, that's fine. Still freaking out because lines, it's like, from a theater perspective, I'm used to having four weeks to prepare. Yeah. Not one. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and we sit down and everyone's there. And then in walks Sarah Jessica Parker and she sits down and everyone's in character. I was like, All right, here we go. And then in walks Eric Stoltz, the director. And I was like, Oh my God, this is the guy from Pulp Fiction. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was like, I felt like I was in the Twilight Zone. Wow. Like, you wouldn't, yeah, you know, Kevin Murphy comes up and says hi. He goes, hey, Dan, Kevin Murphy. I was like, oh my god, hi. He goes, hey, you're taller than you were in your video. I was like, oh my god. And then he walks <laughs> away. And I was like, what the? Where am I? So then we start rehearsals and I'm like, oh, I know these lines. Okay, this is familiar. Here we go. We get done with the rehearsal and they're like, alright, go to the side. We're going to set up the shot. I'm like, set up the shot? We're doing this now? Oh! Okay, <laughs> this is like, all stuff that you learn in school. Yeah. When you go to school. <laughs> Which <laughs> you <I> did didn't. <laughs> so they set up the shot. We sit down. We shoot it. And I'm like sweating bullets. I'm so nervous. If you watch it, that is a nervous actor. <laughs> Don't do what I did on that screen. <laughs> and then the next time, and then you, know, you sign out, you leave, and they say, Great, we'll, we'll call you when we need you. And It was like, all right. So then I go back to Aladdin, and a couple weeks later I get another call, and it's more sides. And I was like, all right, now I know what to do. I got thrown into the fire, and yeah. now I know what's going on. And the result is what you see on
0: screen. Oh man, incredible! And Incred- and that's probably when I started seeing all the buzz happening on social media back then. So that was just, what your late twenties.
1: Uh yeah, this is I was I had just turned third. Oh, oh. yeah, I was twenty. 20- no, I'm sorry.
0: I was 31 at that point. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so once, once that hit and, and you're on TV, uh, I'm assuming the, the, the level just completely changed for you, right? So, what, what yeah. did, uh, what did the career trajectory look like following that? Like, I'm sure you had goals, um, you know, for your career before this, but was there any kind of shift now that TV happened for you?
1: Um, a little bit only because your profile goes up in Hollywood, especially, and people are like, who's this guy? And your manager starts getting phone calls and he's like, I have auditions for you. So it's like, great. More auditions come in at that point. No one's really handing you anything. You're not where you think you would be if you were a younger actor going like, all right, I made it. This is going to be easy now. No, it's not easy. Um, Andre DeShield said something really great. I I know I'm gonna misquote him a little bit, but when he got his Tony Award talking about how the top of one mountain is the bottom of another. And that is so true. Every milestone in my career, I I when I got to a place that I thought was it, it's not it. There's then you gotta do something else. You know, you book that first tour, it's like, great, I'm in it, I'm in rent. Oh, there's more. Great, I, starring in a Broadway show—it's like nope. There's there's more hurdles. It's it's a never end. It feels never ending. I don't know if there is <laughs> at this point, but the work—it's the work doesn't stop. The work ethic has to stay the same. And getting comfortable—and I'm assuming this goes across all different careers—getting comfortable, getting complacent, or feeling like you are owed something because of where you are—is that'll take you down in two seconds that'll that'll ruin years and years of work
0: yeah man that's leadership 101 dude that's leadership 101 right there um talk to me about uh uh, the post glee time now uh what did the career look like um once glee started hitting and how often were you were you on glee
1: oh i just did two episodes two episodes okay after, after that second episode it was like great we'll call you i'm like all right and I was thinking it was going to be like after getting that second phone call, but then the phone call stopped and it's a wake up call. You go, Oh shoot. Now what? Cause then everyone around you is saying, thinks that, especially cause Glee is the biggest yeah. show on television. They're thinking that your life must be so sweet and so easy now. And it's like, no, no, you still got to work hard for it. Didn't get Aladdin. Yeah. They picked someone else. It's like, great. Got to do something else. And you're back to the grind, back to the auditions. And it's, uh, you have to work almost doubly as hard as you did before because people are expecting a certain level from you. Now that they've seen that you did great. Now that they saw that you did a big show like rent, it gets harder.
0: Right. Right. And so, uh, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, the stage right now. Um, and some of the roles that you've had. So we, we talked about it in your bio. Let me just pull this up real quick. Um, you talked about it in your bio. Uh, Heather's the musical um, mm-hmm. Rock of Ages. Uh, let me talk about Rock of Ages for a second. Rock of Ages <laughs> is uh, so so. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna categorize this in two ways, right? So I think that Rent is probably um, my all-time favorite musical because, um, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna categorize it in the way of like uh, you know the people that say like my favorite movie is like um the pelican brief or or something like that something like super serious but in reality it's like weekend at Bernie's, right yeah. <laughs> so so rent for me in terms of everything first of all the music incredible and and just all of it right i i think i've i saw rent on broadway like five or six times and um but then you have something like rock of ages which is just straight up fun another one that i can't i didn't even know how many times i've seen i've seen it on broadway countless times and then we always cruise norwegian like once a year we do a norwegian cruise so i was on this ship that had rock of ages for like three years in a row and we went every single performance in the front row um ah. yeah oh man it's, uh, so so that's my guilty pleasure favorite and rent is probably my favorite favorite <laughs> nice. Nice. Um, but yeah, so, so what was it like? I saw a bunch of clips and I'm going to, I'm going to include some of these clips in the show notes as well in the podcast. I saw a bunch of clips, um, uh, of rock of ages of you. Talk to me about that, that experience. Like how much fun was, was it doing that?
1: That was the dream for me at that point. I was, I was, that's when I felt that I had, uh, reached the goal that I had set that, you know, 18 year old Dan had set out to do, uh, how I got it was not how I thought it was going to go down. It was literally me. I was getting ready to leave LA. I was done with LA after four years. And uh, cause I realized that I kind of given up on my dream and I saw an audition for rock of ages and I was like, Oh, I could do this. And my manager was like, they're not going to hire you. your type. And I was like, just get me in the room and, and let me do what I know I'm good at. And he's like, they're not going to see you. And he was, actively trying to not get me in that room which i was like thinking back to pre-la dan i was like no this is i gotta go back to what i was doing before because that's what worked um so i ended up getting in in la uh had my first audition had a callback and that's when the casting director pulled me aside outside and said uh they want you to go to callbacks in new york um but they're not going to fly you out you have to fly yourself out I can't tell you to, but I think you should. And she was dropping very subtle hints of get yourself to New York. You're definitely a front runner. Uh, so I did. I went back to New York, um, did the callback, and uh, I got paired with the girl that would eventually be my co-star. Um, it was for the tour. And, uh, oh, Wow. Gosh, this is all flooding back now. This is for the tour. Went out on the tour for three months. Because then another show was doing called Wonderland, that was slated to go to Broadway that year, called and said that they were doing another out-of-town run. So then I fly to Florida. I leave Rock of Ages because I'm going to do the show that I know is going to Broadway. I'm rehearsing that for two months. And then I get a call from Rock of Ages Broadway saying, hey, Dan, do you want to play... Drew, we're reopening at the Hill and Hayes because when I was on tour, I went on once as the lead in Boston and the whole creative team just happened to be there Wow! and they saw me do it. And if I didn't do, if I wasn't prepared to go on for that, that day, I probably wouldn't have gotten the call in Florida to do it in New York.
0: So this is, this is a big leadership moment for me. You mentioned before, and I'm glad you mentioned it, uh, that your manager didn't want to send you out on that. Right. Um, Being such a a huge fan of Rock of Ages, I can tell you that uh, seeing your performance uh, on stage and um, just, you know, physically, you don't look like the Drews that I've ever seen before. Um, And so when you talking earlier, when you talked about like a brand new part, that's that that you're the one that gets to create somebody created Drew way back, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, that, and that was the prototype, and that's what they followed for, for every single show. And every Whether it was Nor- Norwegian or Broadway or off-Broadway that I've seen it, um, it's always like the same dude that's on stage. Um, that must have been really just sort of satisfying for you to, to sort of... Very. Yeah, to, to go like, well, I'm doing it differently, and, and they still yeah. want me.
1: Yeah, that's kind of what I prided my career on. Uh, doing everything that I was doing up to that point, because I always wanted to bring a new flavor or some kind of new. Th- th- just the idea that it doesn't have to be one way. Unless your show is specifically calling for a specific look, a specific type, a specific ethnicity, you should be anyone should be able to play any role. Yeah. Um, so to hear that I was being shut out and not given a good enough reason, it wasn't. You know, it's that whole. <laughs> One of my favorite lines from uh, that that song, that Michael Jackson song, "Scream." Mm -hmm. Like, if you tell me I'm wrong, you better prove you're right. Yeah, and that's where I was living. I was like, you can't tell me that I'm wrong unless you could. You need to prove to me that I am wrong by saying that by telling me why you're right. And uh, it was it was very satisfying for sure, getting in there and doing my thing and and getting a good response from the from my friends, from my family, from my peers, from the audiences. Yeah! Amazing!
0: Amazing! Um, I want to. I want to shift for a little bit now. We're going to shift to the, the dreaded year twenty twenty.
1: Right? <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, Whatever's well, going on right now? <laughs> <laughs> everything going on right now. Um, so I want to. I want to s- first talk about. Uh, COVID because we, we've we talked about this on the show. We've talked about a lot of stuff. Uh, Dan, I don't know how many episodes you have caught, if any, of the show, but we, we did a lot um, surrounding COVID, surrounding um, not just what's going on, but sort of how to pick ourselves up and continue yeah. living life, even though it's different right now. Um, yeah. Whether it's from a personal perspective, a business perspective or whatever. Uh, we've talked about you know, all the stuff going on, uh, right now, the racial conversations in the country, we did a four episode series on that, um, which I was really proud of. And so, um, touching on, on COVID first, man, you've been, uh, impacted in a, in a lot of ways, man. So first of all, I want to talk about, um, how you were contracted, uh, this year to be on a cruise ship, right?
1: Yeah. Yep.
0: Yeah. And so you were, what performance were you doing?
1: Uh, they were all original ship shows. Oh, okay, cool. Um, okay. Yeah, um,
0: yeah so, so you were on a, a cruise ship. You were contracted to be on the ship until October, right? Yep. And then COVID hits, and your ship is you're mandated to be stuck out at sea. Uh, yeah. Now, I got word of what was going on. Uh, one of my buddies, uh, mutual friend, Rob McCaffrey, reached out to me, and he's like, hey, dude, uh, you got to have Dan on your show. Uh, to to talk about what's going on or you got to have get word out on your show they're stuck out there they're you know and i was like yeah let me let me reach out and i was reading up on what's going on and it's fucking crazy man
1: <laughs> like it was a mess oh tell a, me talk it was to a me hot mess. Uh, yeah so i i took i took i got uh, you know again manager email it's just something you're interested in and um you know coming up through my career uh, in the very beginnings, uh, ship contracts, ship contracts weren't the most attractive. Uh, you had all these extra duties that you had to do. The pay wasn't good. The shows were—they uh, didn't have a lot of production value. But all that's changed now. Uh, in 2020, especially with the ship that, with the company that I was working for, they pour a lot of money into their entertainment, and so. Uh, I was like, yeah, this is great. I'll go through this whole contract. I'll come back and I'll have all these plans and I'll have all this money saved. And I can like, you know, there was like a short that I wanted to shoot. And I was like, you know what? Let me fund it myself. If I can't find someone to do it with me, I'll do it myself, right? And it seemed like a really good foundation uh, for the things I wanted to do in the future. So I get out there. uh, We rehearse the shows. We get on that ship. And you start hearing the stories of what was going on in that industry Specifically, and you're like, Oh my gosh, that's horrible. Thank God that's not happening here. Yeah. Then you hear that it's starting to spread, and you're like, Oh, well, thank God we're on this ship because now the United States is going through it. You feel like you're in a little bubble in the same little bubble. We unload all the passengers, and they say, All right, we're just gonna anchor out at sea and wait it out. Because you don't think no one could have seen this coming. No one could have seen that. This is going to be a huge pandemic, so we're waiting. And then finally, they were like, "Uh, there's no end to this in sight. We're just going to wait a little longer. And then it turned into, we're suspending operations. Great. We got to get everybody home. And then it turned into, the federal government isn't letting you back into the country until we follow a specific set of rules. So then we follow the rules, and then it was, they're still not letting us into the country. And that's when the alarm got raised. And we started reaching out to everybody that we knew, saying, "How do we get home?" Because not everyone wanted to leave. Some of us, you know, you, you got a gym, you got food, you got friends, you got a bar. It's like it's really the, it's like paradise. Yeah, you're in the middle of the Bahamas. Yeah, you know, <laughs> sun, fun, pool. It's like, yeah, this is great. Then it turns into you're in your room, you know, for everything except meals. Right. Uh, you talk to your coworkers that have. Spouses at home or kids at home or just want to go home and you feel that stress and, and that's when your instinct kicks in. It's like, all right, we got to get together and do this together because individually this is not going to work anymore. I can't say I'm going to chill on my balcony and let you guys figure this out because already you have been spending months in close quarters with these people and you start to feel that bond and you go, all right, let's do this. We're, let's work as a team. We're going to get this done. We're going to get off this ship. And uh, yeah, eventually it worked. Yeah, But it wasn't it it was it was as stressful in the beginning as it was once we saw how big the problem was. Because at first it was 10 Americans. Then it turned into 50, 60 Americans. Then it turned into 10 of the tens of thousands. Then you find out that you have hundreds of thousands of crew members from different nations all over the world that are stuck. And you go, oh, yeah. this is a big problem. What am I in the middle of here? And that's when it was put in the hands of the representatives, the congresspeople, the senators, you know, health and human services, state department. It was major.
0: Yeah, yeah. And uh, I I completely get where you're coming from in terms of, like, the paradigm shifting, right? Because all of a sudden it's like, yeah, well, all right, it's not so bad. You know, there's there's no passengers. This is kind of like a vacation, sort of. We're in the Bahamas. But then it's that thing of, like, once you're told is isolation and there's you know this and that and, and you really are starting to lose your freedoms. that's when all mm-hmm. of a sudden you know the panic starts setting in. I saw a, a quote this morning and it's it's funny because a lot of people will think this is stupid and silly uh, because of the circumstances but the NBA is is starting up again um, and the way they're doing it is they decided they're gonna have a bubble in Orlando. They built this whole structure and all of the teams, that are in uh, um, in in playoff um, contention, they are all traveling to Orlando and will stay in a hotel together in Orlando, and they're playing out the last three months of the season in the same facility, right? Huh. Um, and so I saw some really funny stories of like NBA players that are checking into their hotel rooms, uh, which are like you know economy hotel rooms and they're walking in like what the
1: fuck is this room you know but but welcome to the real world
0: right but lebron james put out a quote um that i thought was really like i would feel like this too it's like you've been stuck in quarantine with your family for months now right uh in the safety of your own home and everything and now it's like you're being told to do a specific thing and he he put out a quote it was something to the effect of um i feel like i'm going to do a bid in jail like because oh, wow. i can't be with my family I'm, I'm gonna be mandated to stay in this hotel i can't leave and it's either the hotel or the bubble and uh although a lot of people will think that's silly and it's like whoa is me you're making 30 million dollars a year but uh i get it you know
1: <laughs> it's like yeah what money does it it's like 30 million dollars a year it's like where are you gonna spend it everything's closed
0: right right <laughs> right <laughs> You know, so yeah, man, uh, that must have been that must have been uh, completely insane. And I saw you, like I said, on the view, um, the interview you did there. And uh, yeah, kudos to you guys for really getting it out there. Because I remember it was probably a matter of days between Rob reaching out to me and then me reaching out to you. And you were like, you know what, Um, not yet, because I think we're starting to get some traction. And so let's see how it plays out. You know
1: yeah yeah because at that point it was every day you were getting phone calls and text messages from people like send us pictures what's going on out there Put one oh this one, i got really upset with this one one of the people that was reaching out from one of the networks was saying can you um put me in touch with someone that may be having a harder time with this because you seem to be handling oh. this whole thing yourself. and i said to her i was like no i need to look out for the mental well-being of my team here this is not no, I'm not going to put you on with someone that you're probably going to try and make upset through your questioning and maybe put them down a bad path. Because at that point, there were there were two people that took their own lives from another country on other ships because of the situation that we're in. Like, it got real serious. There was the whole spectrum of people handling it well and just, like, roll with it. One of my old castmates from rock of ages actually calls me up and he says, Oh man, it's like, just chill out. What's the problem? I'm like, you don't understand you, It's not, it's not what it was the yeah. first week. It's a yeah. whole different ball wax out.
0: Yeah. Uh, and, and speaking of which, I just, I just want to mention this to, to honor him. Um, but yeah, one of, one of your, um, colleagues and friends, Nick Cordero, uh, passed away due to COVID, right?
1: Yep. Yeah. Just recently.
0: Yeah. yeah. People, uh, You know, I've said this a thousand times on the show, man, but like people don't get it, man. Like this is some serious shit. You know, when you start to know people, like I've known people, um, I I know quite a few people directly that, that actually had COVID, but I knew a few people indirectly that lost parents and grandparents and brothers and, uh, due to this. And, uh, this is no joke, man. This is no joke. This is scary time.
1: Yeah. It really puts things in perspective It makes you wonder about the, uh, the rate at which everyone gets their information, I'm sure has a lot to do with this. Cause there are some people that are probably ignoring uh, what's going on out there, or they just, they're not tapped into those things. You know, if you don't like for, it's like that thing when you cut the when you cut the cable cord and you're no longer watching the news and then you're starting to hear all these stories, it's, it's like, where are people getting their information from? And is that in direct correlation with how seriously they're taking it?
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. But now at this point, everybody knows like there is no no one can play dumb anymore we know what's going on and we we're seeing we're starting to see the trends of what's working here yeah. in new york the numbers are lower than they've ever been everyone's walking around with masks they're following the rules and then you hear all these stories and see all these videos of people in middle america that are that are outwardly combative when it's it defiant comes to the yep act of putting a mask on you're like guys look what's happening here it worked yeah. We're literally showing you how it works. We're leading the charge here in New York, and you can do the same thing.
0: And I think, I think where the big um, paradigm shift is and continues to, to be and will eventually just kind of show everybody <laughs> how serious it is. And unfortunately, it's not going to be the health thing. It's going to be the business side of things. It's going to be where people are affected because there, there will be a second wave. Um, you know, how it's handled in your area and your municipality really depends on how they're running. I believe here in New York, um, I'm hoping that it's not going to be as big of a shutdown on the second wave. Um, but that's because I'm even seeing the schools right now. They're not going to open up regular in the fall. They're going to have yeah. either a hybrid model or stay home at the beginning of the year. You know, they're, they're looking to build models where it's like kids are going to school two days a week and, and distance learning three days a week. Um yeah. You know, this is a different world right now. And I have seen yeah. firsthand industries that have been completely destroyed, one of them, of course, being Broadway. Um, mm-hmm. And and people just don't realize you think Broadway and immediately you're thinking actors, right? Um, there is crew. There is costume design. There is outsourced costume design. There is um, theater employees, ticketing. There's a whole business behind it. Uh, yep. And the fact that man, it's, it's shut down for the rest of the year. Like, mm-hmm. Talk to me about um, I, I want to sort of just take the temperature of what's going on within your community right now.
1: Um, it went from a pause, like everything else, to The Broadway League, which is the the group of producers, it's kind of like their own, they're separate from the actors' union, um, starting to talk to professionals about the safest way to reopen. Uh, The dates kept getting pushed back further and further and further, and now it seems to be rather than, okay, here's the date that we're going to reopen, and it's going to be just like it was before, to here's the date we're going to reopen, it's a different world. This is how we're going to do it. Now, that's one fight that they're fighting. The other fight that they're fighting now is equality, because ever since the George Floyd incident, it opened up this whole entire, it really drew back the curtain on the inequities in our own industry uh, when it comes to, and I use this term very lightly because it's no longer minorities. We're no longer, you know, black, Hispanic, we're no longer minority. Um, But a lot of people, I feel like that word is still palatable to people that don't know the numbers or don't see it like that. Yeah. But um to, to to so so they're fighting that fight to get more equality within within the industry and realize that yes, there are probably unconscious, probably some conscious, biases against people of color uh in our industry. So you have that fight happening, you have the the reopening happening, and it's still it's still just ideas being thrown out right now. Cause I don't think anyone really knows what it's going to be like when things reopen.
0: Yeah. Um, I want to address one thing here. So, so there's, there's always going to be the financial aspect of what's going on and how much it hits uh, the theater community. Right. Um, the other side of it, and, and and some people won't really care about this side of it because it's a, a luxury to some people. I don't believe creativity is a luxury, uh, creativity mm-hmm. for me in my life is a necessity. I have to have it in order to think the way I do and and to be the person that I am now. Um, the creative outlet, not only for um, the actors and actresses and 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 crew, but for the audience, is huge with Broadway. Um, what has that been like for you in these last few months?
1: What specifically? Were you talking about
0: talking about like the lack of? You know um, the lack of that creative outlet, and I know not everybody's working oh, at the all lack times. Oh, like
1: having art world, yeah. a of live performance. Yeah. Oh, I think it's huge. I think that this is this is the main problem I have when it comes to just societies in general or communities in general is that they don't put weight on just how important entertainment is, just how important. Because you think of entertainment, you think movies and television is something you can just you know take your remote and click it on but when you think about live venues when you think about concerts and when you think about theater or even like live talks like the TEDx talks being in an audience and seeing a live human being deliver something to you that changes you is essential to every community it helps you think it helps move things forward but like when we were on that ship when before everything went on lockdown they were we did shows for the crew we did crew shows because people needed entertainment there's only so many Movies you can watch on the preloaded hard drive of you know yeah. how many times can you watch Joker in a row? It's like yeah, eventually you want to see like a live performance. It's infectious. You, there's nothing like it in the world. Um, if there were, it wouldn't be so lucrative. Yeah. Um, so that coupled with this, especially the the when brand new shows come out like like Rent when it came out changed everything. It transcended the industry. It brought attention to a time uh, in the 90s when the AIDS epidemic was just decimating communities left and right. It highlighted the importance of community like shows like Come From Away do right now. It's We need that as human beings. And the fact that there's the importance isn't we're always the last to receive anything. We haven't received an, an arts package here in the United States yet. They just gave two billion pounds to it in the UK. And uh, uh, speaking of leadership, New Zealand. Oh my God, they are like setting the gold standard now for how to take care of your people. And arts was—they're like arts is essential to our people. We need to really help these people out because they're they're suffering, and because they're suffering, our communities are going to suffer.
0: Yeah, and and this is something that I had on my agenda uh, that I wanted to talk about. Specifically, you took the words right out of my mouth with rent. Um, when when we look at this, this these are not just. Uh, live performances to entertain us for two hours, and then we get to go home. These are these are cultural movements, you know. Uh, Broadway and the theater in general has helped to move the needle. I mean, I I remember the early '90s and the late '80s when we were just coming of age to sort of understand things like, uh, you know, homosexuality and and uh, uh, and the AIDS epidemic at the time and everything and um, And here comes a musical that just fucking says it all out loud and, like, just normalizes everything. And it's like, here we are. We're people. This is what we're going through. And I forget how many years that ran. But you look at what life was like before Rent and you look at what life was like after Rent. And don't tell me that a show like that didn't have its place in creating exactly. that change, right? You look at right now and how timely is this, and we'll get into this conversation, but how timely is it that I don't think Hamilton ever had a, a, any kind of downward um, uh, trajectory as of late, but of course it had a, a, resurgent, a resurgence during the quarantine right now because of the Disney Plus premiere of, uh, of the show. And like, how important right now is it to have a, a cast that's primarily black and brown telling this story that a lot of people had no idea about, um, about the founding of our nation and the principles that it's based on. And it's being told by people that are inspiring not only uh, uh, the thought behind the story, but look who's representing the story, Mm -hmm. right? That's Broadway did that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, when you talk about an uh, uh, arts and entertainment stimulus or whatever, this is something I wanted to hit on. Uh, first of all, I want to I want to shout out um, the – where do I have it here? I think it's the Actors Fund, actorfund.org. Um, I had a, 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 a fellow dealer that I reached out to um, that works on Broadway, and I asked her um, what the best – Um, initiative would be to mention on this show. And she mentioned that that's a a great place to start. The Actors Fund fosters stability and resiliency and provides a safety net for performing arts and entertainment professionals uh, over their lifespan. So we'll put the link on there, but you should be writing to people. I know there are campaigns out there, Dan, if you want to share them with me, I'll put them in the show notes. I know there are campaigns out there to write to elected officials, um, about packages being released within these industries, uh, these industries can't go away. We will lose much more than people think if these industries just shut down and go away and they cannot sustain without some type of package, uh, coming to them. Super important. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I just, before we, we begin to wrap up, I do want to touch on that. We were talking about Hamilton a little bit in the representation, uh, coming from that. Um, what sparked us to finally book this interview was you had put a, um, a post on social media. You put a tweet out there that said, I'm ready to hear stories of people who found their real purpose and passion during this long pause. And I know everybody has had a, a totally different experience. I've actually had, um, <laughs> I hate to say it, I've, I've actually had a pretty nice experience during this quarantine, my business didn't really suffer too much, thank goodness. Um, And we had some new programs that launched early on in the pandemic. So we didn't take too much of a hit, which was great. But being home and then transferring my studio to the house and being able to just be here full time and just be creative, um, man, it's opened up so so many doors and so many more outlets for me just to, to kind of get creative and, and write. I've been you know, doing so much work for my book that's coming out and all kinds of stuff, and specifically, um, I was super activated after you know the, the murder of George Floyd to start a conversation. Uh, and so that was the answer to that question that you raised out there, um, was that this, I found more purpose in this and using this microphone you know, to get other people's stories out here. We had some incredible panel conversations um, And uh, it's it's been a joy, honestly. So I kind of wanted to uh, hear what kind of feedback you've gotten on that. And I want to ask you, yourself, you know, what kind of have you found real purpose during this pause?
1: Yeah, I think um, what this pause has started to feel like was a younger Dan living in Farmingdale, knowing that there's a bigger world out there and trying everything he could do to figure out how to get out into that world. You're... You know, it's, it's, it's that whole thing when, when you're in high school or the summer and you have a day where you have nothing to do and you're bored and you just figure it out. You figure out what's going to make you happy, but you don't think, is this going to be a career? You're just doing it because it feels good. And people are starting to do things right now that feel good. And I think realizing that when you do something that feels good… You lose your sense of time before you know it. You've been doing that thing for eight hours straight. And it feels like it's only been five minutes. Like, I can't believe it's already 10 after three here. We've been talking for over an hour. It doesn't feel like it because I love having this conversation. Yeah. It's just when you do what you love, time has no meaning. Uh, The problem that we've all had coming up is that how do I do what I love and still pay my bills? Yeah. How do I pay the rent? How do I raise a kid? How do I support a family? and that becomes the struggle of do i do something because it's going to make money or do i do something because it's going to bring out the best in me and um i hope my hope is that more people are going to go out and do what they know inside of themselves that they really are meant to do in this world because that's what's going to make coming out of this whole thing more palatable it's going to make community stronger it's going to make the nation stronger and i i know it sounds corny but i really do think it's going to make the world stronger because we're all going through this together So coming out with a sense of purpose and not a sense of I have to do something just to survive is what's going to change. And for me personally, um, you know, I'm still figuring it out because I think because of the situation that I was in on that ship and seeing our community, our little community there that we had set up all of a sudden break down, I'm looking now for opportunities to help rebuild anywhere, anywhere I can, whether it's Broadway, whether it's in my own family, whether it's with my friends, just trying to get people back together to start thinking again, so that we can we can come out of this with a little less scarring than we're already going to come out of it with.
0: Yeah, I love that. I love that, man. That's uh, that's a great place to move into the final segment here. Uh, it's the big three
1: the big three from the launch cast.
0: We're doing the big three. The big three is your top three. I'm going to call out some random stuff. I want to give you, I want you to give me your your quick, concise top three for each. Ready?
1: Oh, gosh. I I hope so. (laughs) All
0: right. I want to start with this. I want to start with three scariest moments stuck out at sea.
1: Oh, gosh. Um, Okay. The first one would probably be finding out that we're not getting back into the country. Oh, no, no, that wasn't, the, that wasn't the first one. It was the day that the people that were in charge came to us and said, there's nothing else we can do. <laughs> because we put our faith in them. We trusted them to take care of us, which they did. They took very good care of us. But when those people come and say, we don't know what to do, you go into panic mode. So that was scary. Yeah. Scary moment number two was probably the day that we heard that there were people that were sick on board. We, they had two false positives. So we believed that we had this thing on our ship when we didn't. And that was scary because we didn't know just how serious it could have gotten because of the team that we had on there. It didn't become an issue and it didn't spread. And it didn't, we were still able to live our lives. But when you hear that, you're like, someone has the flu. You're like, is it the flu? And, turns out it was the float, but yeah. that was scary. And the third scariest moment was when we left the sh- the safety of our first ship and we got transferred to a second ship with all the other Americans and Canadians, uh, our leadership was gone. The person that was in charge, the, the, the figurehead that we were looking towards for answers got shipped back to the UK and we were alone. And that's when the whole hierarchy just came tumbling down and no one knew where to look for answers. No one knew who was in charge. No one knew where to get their information from. And uh, the people that we thought we were supposed to get information from, we weren't getting anything from. And so that, it just felt like a swarm of bees trying to figure out where the queen is. Uh, And I had never felt that before in my life. And that was a huge eye opener. Yeah.
0: Insane. Next one. Uh, and this is, this is not that you have been, and this is just of all time. Three favorite musicals of all time.
1: Oof, Avenue Q, uh, first and foremost. I think it's, at the time, was perfect, and the music is brilliant. Uh, <laughs> I must have seen Footloose 12 times. I don't know <laughs> what it was. About 20-year-old Dan that loved going to see that <laughs> musical the talent, and the music was... I loved that show and then Songs for a New World I've never seen a live performance of it but it was the album that I would sing to five times a day and I'd give a lot of credit to you know especially in my 20s and what my voice was doing then before I got into rock music it was be- that that album helped me do the things that I was able to do. Oh
0: very cool very cool yeah. alright so so this one is uh, and you can you can act these out if you want or you could just say them <laughs> I want oh, oh. your three favorite lines that you have ever done
1: Three favorite lines. Okay, and you, you uh, have uh, to Rocky cite Rocky. them too. <laughs> okay, one of them. One of one of them was in the Rocky Horror Show at the Dallas Theater Center. It wasn't in the script. Um, it was an ad lib where the character Brad is singing once in a while, and I take his guitar halfway through the song and I smash it on the ground, and I look at him and I go, "You motherfucker." <laughs> Because I felt like he had wronged me. And it just felt right. And it uh, it was hilarious every night. And this poor guy had to get this energy from me. He was such a champion. Really good guy. That's that great. one. Uh, another one. Oh, gosh. Let's see. Um, probably from the Who's Tommy. It's sung. I'm not singing. <laughs> 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 it's the it's the whole mantra of the show. See me, feel me, touch me, heal me. Uh-huh. Um, I did that show in two thousand and four. I think it was at the Media Theater in Pennsylvania. And every time you sing that in the beginning, you're like, it's just part of the show. But the more you do it, it turns into this mantra, and then you start applying it to the things in your own life. And especially as a young actor, that feels like I wasn't being seen, and feels like I had so much to offer. It really that really touched me, and it was like everyone needs to do this everyone needs to think these words cuz it'll bring out the best of them
0: is that early on in the show that, that that line comes
1: uh gosh when does it come it's been so long now um it's yeah well yeah it's in the, it's definitely in the first act the narrator keeps appearing Got to a younger tommy his older version and he's saying that to the kid the kid version of himself um and you see it all over the album the words yeah and then the third, oh gosh, the third. Let me think. I mean, it's ha- it's got to be from Rent. It's no day but today. That that rings true no matter who you are, whether you're into theater or anything else in your life. There is, and especially now, where time has no meaning. Yeah, <laughs> there is no day. <laughs> you really wake up and it's like today is the day. Very true. I don't know what I mean. But here it is.
0: love it. all right. next one is two more left. uh I want to hear about uh three professional goals that you have going forward that you haven't achieved yet
1: uh I want to I want to direct a big budget musical. Um, I love bringing actors together. I love bringing things out of actors, and I've gotten to do that on uh a very amateur level so far um but to have. You know, that $8 million production where you can hire all your friends that are already stars, and you know it's not going to be a question when they go, Does it pay? You go, Yeah, yeah pay is get in here. Let's have some fun. Yeah. I want to I get all those talented. Well, the, the thing on my website, I want to get all these talented people together that I know and get in a room and go back to a time where we were all just having fun because that brings out the best in everybody. Yeah. And not every experience is like that. So direct a big budget musical. Uh, oh gosh, Marriage and children I've wanted that since I was in the twenties, and it's been so difficult to find in this industry yeah, um so I think uh that is like that's a life goal, yeah, for sure, that's
0: okay, that fits,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true, it's true are we are we just doing professional?
0: It <laughs> doesn't matter three goals we're made three goals I changed it
1: <laughs> and then uh and then my last goal. Yeah, it would hmm. I would love to write something for the screen and and just see it get done. It doesn't have to be you know, Titanic. Yeah. But something just to see something come from your mind and and eventually get to a screen would be would be something monumental.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Um, I want to ask you uh, before we do the last one. I want to ask you about the the first goal, the directing a big budget musical. So, um, I, I definitely saw like a, a spark light up there when you talked about uh, being able to bring talent together and and put it on the stage. Um, it was a funny moment, and I want to I want to see if you've had any any kind of experience with this. Um, it's a funny moment when you're a performer, right? And then you take that leap to kind of start. Running the thing and putting it together, uh, and and there's a there's an element of it that's that's creativity, but then there's the element of, I guess, being able to give somebody else the stage, which is kind of cool, you know. Um, when I, um, you know, in the, the the speaking that I do, the keynote speaking, um, you know, I've done two Tedxes before, and one of my goals, life goals, is to be on the main TED stage, uh, the annual TED stage. But in order to get there, I wanted to learn from other TEDx speakers. I wanted to kind of see what's what's behind the talks, how they put them together, what their process is ver- versus mine, and couple that with my love of, of our hometown. Uh, and I wanted to be able to bring this here. And so last year, when I was licensed to bring TEDx Farmingdale um, to Farmingdale, man, it was, it was so transformative. It was wow. one, probably one of the most incredible experiences that I've ever gone through. Um, and it was weird, right? Because I, I love being the speaker on the stage. Like I very much enjoy that. You know, when I'm the keynote for a conference, I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm the guy here. But yeah. to to be able to put that aside and no less in my hometown where if I could have any stage, this is the one I would want to have. And mm-hmm. to kind of uh, to be able to put that aside and go, no, I there's other people that need to be on the stage and tell their stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fuck that was like crazy. Yeah. it was it That's was a the crazy thing feeling. For a lot
1: of people to to get to that place. You know, when you're a lot of times ego is dictating what the decisions that people are making, especially when it comes to getting who you are out there to to a big group of people. But any any successful venture that you see in any industry is when you get a group of people together and their egos get put aside and they're like, we have something more important than us right now going on. and We're going to yeah. do it.
0: Yeah, yeah, big time, yeah. big time. Last one. Three things, and this is a big one three things that need to change.
1: Oh gosh, we need to start respecting each other more. Both sides of the aisle, us as people, we need to understand that the United States, we are one country, but we're also like the size of Europe. You know, we're not a bunch of different countries, we're one big country. People on the East Coast need to understand people on the West Coast are different. Who need to understand people in the South are different. Who need to understand people in the middle and Montana are different. But at the end of the day, we all just want to be respected and live our lives and have a good time. And I think that's getting lost. And I think that's, I don't know why that is, but the more you travel, you can go to any other country and relate to people because we're all human beings. So we need to start treating each other much better. We need to figure out why things are so unstable right now? Why pay gaps are so large? Why there are? Why they say the middle class is shrinking? Why is it? Why can't people afford to live on minimum wage? What? What? Their, our economy is so unbalanced right now, and everyone is wanting to, to be right, and they're not coming together to, to say, okay, we need to make this. We need to figure this out because this is clearly broken. And then the third thing that needs to change. Oh, goodness gracious. I mean, they all kind of go hand in hand with each other. With I'll treating take two. Each other better.
0: I'll take two. Yeah.
1: yeah it, really is. <laughs> it, really, it really is just about treating each other better. Everyone's, I think people, it feels like the world, maybe not the world, but definitely our country has lost its humanity. We well, forgot that we're all human beings.
0: I'll tell you I uh, I met somebody the other day. Um I was on a a big TED webinar um the other day and so I met organizers from all over the world. And um I saw a post from actually a a, a Greek organizer based out of Greece, um uh, TEDx organizer and he he put up a post about um the United States and and he lives in Greece this guy and it was really like heartwarming to see this sentiment because I know that um, there is a a cultural gap there where uh, a lot of countries just don't respect us right now and, um, and whatever the case is. But it was really cool to see this guy, who, by the way, is like in the birthplace of democracy, talking about how no matter how people feel about the United States right now, don't forget that it's still the model in the world for democracy and there is no better place to live and to thrive than here, and yada, yada. And he went on, and I was kind of like, man, this is like somebody from the other side of the world right now looking at us, and even though they kind of pity what's going on here, they still know, like, you know, don't forget who these people are. You know, it was kind of yeah, cool. Recognize
1: the freedoms that we have.
0: Yeah, and it was really cool to see that, especially knowing that country, knowing the stuff that they've gone through, even economically, in the last few years. Um, and so... Uh, what I want to leave everybody with here, if we're going to try and activate people is really a conversation that's surrounding the conversations happening today. You know, you talked about how we treat each other, Dan, you talked about um, pay gaps amongst uh, genders. Um, The cool thing happening right now, if we look at history uh, and we look at sort of the cycle around history is, you know, things, things don't happen right away, which sucks, right? Um, They take a generation or two or five sometimes to move, but they always started to change and did change once that conversation hit that melting point. And we're here right now. This is a time in history that we can actually say we we were here. We were here when um when white people fully recognized that people of color need to be respected the way everybody is, right? We were here when the the gender pay gap conversations uh, came to a height and, it, and they were recognized. And so, you know, unfortunately, things won't change overnight. But I do have, you know, a, a lot of hope right now because these conversations are just happening and not going away. That yeah. something's going to happen.
1: People aren't afraid to talk about it, and that's a great thing because yeah. then you start to find where. The common ground is you start to find ideas and people. You find the people that are trying to be part of the solution.
0: Yeah, look at this Broadway star and this guy's giving us advice to save the world. I love it. This is what we're supposed to be doing here, as people. We talk. I'm
1: just Dan, an actor. I'm just an actor.
0: Dan, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me today, man. This was this was a blast. Uh Yeah, I'll yeah. talk to you in a minute after we get off, guys. We'll see you next week.
1: Launch sequence terminated. Into the black hole.
0: Thanks for listening to the Launchcast today. Please make sure to subscribe to this feed wherever podcasts are available. Follow me, George Andriopoulos, at Launchpad CEO on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And make sure to visit our website, guys, thelaunchcast.com.
1: Looking forward to the next episode. See you soon, guys.